You're listening to a sermon from Realm Church. We're a church based in Oakland, California. For more information about us, visit therealmchurch.com. This sermon comes to us from church leader Chris Geiger. Thank you. I would like to welcome especially our visitors uh, who have uh, come to be with us today for the first time. We will not ask you to identify yourselves, um, but I think we know uh, who, the, who the new faces are. It's really, really a joy to have you here as we worship uh, our God together. My name is Chris uh, Kiyagiri, and I am one of the members of Realm Church, and it is my joy to stand um, before you and bring God's word um, in place of our pastor who's out uh, ministering at a different church this morning. And even as we read God's word and take some time to pray together, we'll be uh, remembering uh, him as, as he breaks the word of God um, to our brothers and sisters uh, south of us from here. Okay, so why don't we begin by reading Acts chapter 15, Acts chapter 15, verses 1 to 18, Acts chapter 15, verses 1 to 18, then we'll pray and we'll get into it. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles. And, they brought, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter, and after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you, that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles, to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. This is the word of the Lord. Our great God, we come before you, maker of heaven and earth, you who has created us, you who sustains our every breath, you who has woken us up this morning, you who has gathered us in your name, under your word, we worship you. We worship you as not merely the creator, not as one who is distant from us, but as one who has Come down to us, Emmanuel, in the person of your son, Jesus Christ. And through him, you have made a way for us to have relationship with you as children to a father. Indeed, you know our name, our individual names. And if we are in Christ, your word tells us that our names are graven on your hands, written on your hearts. No one can pluck us out of your hands if we are in Christ. And we rejoice in this reality 
It changes everything about us. It changes our identity. It changes our present, our future. It is our hope. And so we rejoice this morning that we can come to you and have an opportunity once again to have fellowship under your word and with one another. And so now as we look at this passage, as we hear from you, Holy Spirit, would you teach us? Would you instruct us? Would you guide us? Would you rebuke us where we need to be rebuked? Would you build us up? Would you build up your church for your glory? And as you meet with us here, Lord, would you be with our pastor down in Milpitas as he ministers the word to the brothers and sisters there? Would you meet with them? Would you bless their time together under your word? And Lord, we'll be careful to give you thanks for all that you will accomplish uh, through this time. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, you will get a lot more out of this morning's sermon if you have your Bible in front of you. Uh, and if you follow along, we will put up some of the scripture passages on the screen, not all of them. So if you do have a copy of the scriptures, um, please follow along so that we can be sure that we are hearing the very words of God. Now, the word for counsel in Kiswahili is baraza. Um, and a quarter of a century plus ago, when I was in high school, uh, we had... Uh, I was in a boarding school, and we had a, a weekly baraza, a weekly council, Friday evenings. And it was a forum in which uh, we could settle issues pertaining to boarding school life. We would have the school administration seated in the front. We would have the student government uh, seated on one side of the room and all the student body in the middle. Um, it would be an opportunity for any student who had an issue, a question, uh, open mic, come and, and, and raise it. Uh, and the whole point of having that forum was to, to be on the same page as, as a family, if you will, uh, to sort through things that were on the students' minds, right? If uh, this administration had promised a year ago that you know, something would happen and it hadn't happened, it would be an opportunity to, to keep them honest, uh, inquire what the updates were. Uh, if uh, any members of the student government uh, had been unjust in their dealings with the fellow students, it would be an opportunity to raise those matters and, and iron those things out. That was inspired by... Uh, what we call Baraza Lawaze in Kenya, which is Council of Elders. So in African traditional society, uh, elders played a very important role uh, as the arbiters, if you will, of issues in the society. When things were not going well, or if there was any dispute, if there was any contention, you brought it before the elders, the Council of Elders, if you will, for the sake of ironing out and settling issues. And throughout church history, councils have been an occasion to settle issues of faith among Christians. If you go as far back as 325 AD, the Council of Nicaea, convened by the Roman Emperor at the time, Constantine, to settle the issue of the divine nature of God the Son and his relationship to God the Father, might that be an important issue? I think that's important, right? the divinity of Jesus Christ. And then a few years later, 383 to 397 AD, there was a series of councils, the Council of Rome, the Council of Hippo, the Council of Carthage. And the issues that were settled by that council was the issue of the canon of Scripture, right? the canon of Scripture, the, the books, the 39 Old Testament books, the 27 New Testament books that we call the Bible. Is that an issue worth settling? That was an important issue worth settling. Fast forward to the 1500s. The Council of Trent, convened by the Catholic Church in response to the Protestant Reformation. And you can come all the way into our 
collective lifetimes here into the late 70s, there was the Council on Biblical Inerrancy. I think it was convened in Chicago. Uh, again, biblical inerrancy, is that, is that something worth contending over? Yes, it is. But all of this is predated by our text this morning, what is entitled in some of your Bibles, the Jerusalem Council. The Jerusalem Council. And we will see what was it, what was the issue, what was the key issue that needed to be settled that was so important that it is recorded for us in Scripture. The Council of Nicaea, the Council of Trent, none of that is in Scripture. But those were important issues. But this issue is so important that we have record of this council uh, in front of us this morning. Still by way of introduction, I want to read for us from Genesis chapter 17, six verses, verses 9 to 14, on circumcision. Genesis 17, verses 9 to 14, it says, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Okay, so that's the covenant of circumcision given to Abraham in Genesis 17. And lastly, by way of introduction, last week uh, we were looking at uh, chapter 13. 13 and 14 on Paul's, Paul and Barnabas's first missionary journey, right? And actually, two weeks ago, it was service Sunday, and pastor gave us a short devotional in which we saw Paul and Barnabas being set apart and sent off at the very beginning of chapter 13. Our text this morning comes right after they have completed that first missionary journey, um, and we'll have a map up on the screen here. They were returning to Antioch in Syria, so there's two Antiochs on this screen. You have Antioch on the right, Antioch in Syria. So they've just concluded their first missionary journey in verse 26 of chapter 14. And we read there in verse 26, chapter 14, they gather the church together and they give a report of all that God had done on their trip, specifically in granting the Gentiles faith to believe in Jesus. I want us very quickly to recount the examples that are recorded for us of Gentiles receiving faith in Jesus on this trip. Chapter 13, verse 7, in Cyprus, right here, the island, we meet uh, the proconsul, Sergius Paulus. He's the highest-ranking official in a Roman senatorial province, so think of a senator today. And he comes to faith in verse 12. They then proceed to the other Antioch in uh, Pisidia. You can see it up there. John Mark returns to Jerusalem, the dotted line here. At Antioch in Pisidia, Paul preaches a sermon in chapter 13 from verses 16 to 41 in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. When he finishes the sermon, we're told that in verse 42, the people begged that these things would be told to them again the following Sabbath, so the following week. And so in verse 44, we see that the next Sabbath, it says, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. And in verse 48, we read that when the Gentiles heard it, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Let me just pause here by way of quick application and say that I don't know if there will ever come a day when almost all of the city of Oakland will gather to hear the word of the Lord, but I do know that God has in this city those that he has appointed to eternal life who have yet to believe, and that he wants to use us the same way he used Paul and Barnabas to see men, women, and children rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord upon hearing this good news of Jesus and believing in him. Last Sunday, we were in chapter 14, and we saw at Iconium, 
chapter 14, verse 1, back to the map. So you see Iconium up there, under Galatia there, within the, the region of Galatia. Paul and Barnabas spoke there in such a way that it tells us many Jews and Greeks believed. They then proceed to Derby. This is all in modern-day Turkey. And in verse 21, they preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples. And then they looped back over the same route that they had come, and then they end up at Antioch, um, and they give this report. So chapter 14 ends with them giving the report to the church that the Gentiles have come to faith in Christ. Aren't you glad that God has been at work in Gentiles since then, up until now, right? If you and I are not ethnically Jewish, that includes us, right? We are Gentiles, those who were once outsiders who have been included in the chosen people of God. But now we come to our text. Chapter 15, verse 1 opens with some men who have come down from Judea to Antioch. So back to the map. Uh, so Judea and is down here where Jerusalem is. So they've come to Antioch. And uh, they are teaching the brothers. It reads there in verse 1, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. These men from Judea, uh, we are told, we won't cover verse 24 outside of our text, but if you peek ahead, if you have your Bibles in front of you, we're told in verse 24 that these men were not sanctioned by the apostles and the elders. The church had not sent them to Antioch to bring this teaching. But you have to remember back then, right, no cell phones, no text messaging, uh, no way to confirm whether these people have been sent or not, right? You just have men teaching, and they're coming from Jerusalem, right? And Paul and Barnabas and the church in Antioch, they know that there's believers in Jerusalem. They know that Peter and the apostles and the elders are there. And so when they hear that these teachers have come from there, you know, they might, they might begin to wonder, is this the teaching of the church in Jerusalem, right? And so it creates a problem. They hear this teaching, right? And it, it you know, this is Paul. He's just, and Barnabas, they just come from this missionary journey. Gentiles have been coming to faith in Christ. Uh, and so something is amiss. Um, and so they, uh, if, you, if you look at the teaching on circumcision, this has been an issue all the way from chapter 10. Do you remember the four Sundays ago, we, we looked at Cornelius coming to faith? And after Peter comes back from ministering to Cornelius and comes and gives a report to the church, what happens? He is accused of sitting with uncircumcised people, right? He is accused of not being faithful uh, in the way he went about interacting with Cornelius and Gentiles. Um, and so Pastor James brought that sermon to us, God's vision for an intercultural community. Um, and if you turn with me to chapter 10, verse 43, I want us to see the end of it. Acts 10, 43. I'll read 43 to the end. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who had heard the word. The believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. They were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Chapter 11, verse 1, now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. So there's two factions of the Jewish believers in the church of, in Jerusalem. There's those who, they heard that the Holy Spirit had come upon the Gentiles and that they had been baptized into the church, and for them, that settled it. The Holy Spirit was with them, just as they were with us as Jews. That settles it. They are believers. They're one of us. And then here we have another faction of Jewish Christians that argued that 
No, Gentiles should undergo circumcision and other ceremonies that were required of all converts into Judaism. Right? The name of a party, whether it's a political party or a religious uh, denomination, tells you what is primary to that party. Right? So if I grew up as a Baptist in the Baptist church, believer's baptism is a big deal. Right? Here, this party is called the circumcision party. That is what they hang their hats on. Right? They are the circumcision party. Right? So this is of utmost importance to them. And we will see that this same group here in chapter 11 is the one from whom these teachers from Judea have come. Right? We're calling them troubling teachers, unsanctioned unsettlers. Okay? So the summary of this issue is, do Gentiles need to follow Jewish ceremonial laws in order to become Christians? Right? See, of the ceremonial laws, circumcision was the most prominent, but there were others, including food laws, other sacrifices and festivals, right? And so if it were to be determined that Gentiles needed to be circumcised, it would also follow that they would need to abide by the other ceremonial laws, right? Food laws, clothing and dress. Um, and these would have been foreign to the communities, the Gentile communities in which they lived, meaning that they would almost certainly have had to remove themselves from their existing communities in order to live in this new way. So the implications are huge. Now, brothers and sisters, here's an ugly truth. It is in our nature to be like these troublesome teachers, to add both upon ourselves and on others burdens that God did not intend for us as his followers. It goes back to the garden in Genesis 2 and 3, right? Remember in Genesis 2, right, creation account, the tree of the knowledge of good and of evil. God says, in order to live, you must not eat of that tree, right? And then in chapter 3, the serpent approaches Eve, right? Says, did God say uh, that you couldn't eat of that tree? Eve's response was, God said... We must not eat of it, nor touch it, lest we die, right? So that was not part of at least what's recorded in chapter 2, right? So already from the very beginning, we're adding, right? We're adding another law, if you will, uh, to what God has given, right? He says, to be saved, don't eat it. Chapter next, next chapter, she says, on top of not eating it, we must not touch it either, Right? Now, is there prudence in not touching the thing that you're not supposed to eat? Sure. But is it a law? No. And that's just from the very beginning and on and on it goes throughout Scripture. We see that that is the propensity that we have towards law-keeping, both upon ourselves and upon others. There is much that can be said right, beyond the scope of today's sermon on, say, tithing or the Sabbath or clothing and dress or food and drink. Right? And even the Lord's table, which we'll be observing later this morning, where if we're not careful to understand what the, what the word of the Lord teaches, we can end up burdening ourselves and others by the law in a way that God does not intend. I'll give you a personal example. I, you know, at some point growing up, there was uh, a teaching that I, I heard uh, concerning the Lord's table, uh, and particularly the text that says, you know, he that eateth or drinketh unworthily, right, drinketh. Uh, damnation to themselves. And so, you know, don't approach the table casually, right? But the teaching centered so much on that word unworthily, and it called, at least the way I understood it, I could have been at fault uh, for the way I understood the teaching was that, you know, I evaluate my worth or my worthiness before determining whether to partake of the Lord's table, right? Now, who of us is worthy? None of us, right? And so oftentimes, if you, you have people who abstain from the Lord's table, and it's because of this sense of unworthiness, right? And there is that text, right? And, and they're thinking, well, I, I, I don't want to eat or drink judgment to myself, right? And that's good. But that's because there's been some teaching that has laid upon, in, in my case, it was me, could be you this morning, a, a, a burden, something beyond what God had intended, Right? If anything, when we are not 
walking with the Lord, if we are not in step with the Lord, if we are not acknowledging him for who he is, we need to draw near. We need to not distance ourselves from the fellowship. We need to draw closer. Um, and so just one example of how we can take even what is in Scripture, read it a certain way or hear certain teaching and take on a burden or apply burdens to other people beyond what was intended. Let's come to our next point here on dissension, debate, and the pursuit of unity, verses 2 through 6 in our text, Acts chapter 15. Notice the response of Paul and Barnabas to the teaching of these men from Judea. It says they had no small dissension and debate. This is the same type of language that we see at the end of chapter 14, right? The last verse of chapter 14 says they remained no little time uh, with the disciples, Uh, Just a sidebar, it's believed that the entire letter to the Galatians was written in that verse 28, that no little time that Paul and Barnabas spent with the disciples in Antioch. In that no little time, uh, the entire letter to the Galatians takes place there. Uh, And so here, when it says no small dissension and debate, it means that there was a firm and substantial debate because a lot was at stake. And friends, we ought to not shy away from bringing any and all teaching under the microscope of the broader testimony of the scriptures to examine if a teacher who claims to be speaking God's word is indeed speaking the truth. We are to be like the Bereans who we will encounter in Acts 17, perhaps in a few weeks, who are described as noble because they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily, to see if this, these things were so. Realm Church, is that us? Is that us examining the scriptures daily, right? To see if the things that we are hearing, whether from this pulpit or elsewhere, are true. You may ask, what about unity? What about unity? Dissension and debate does not sound like unity. Doesn't the Lord love unity? Yes, he does. Let's be clear. Unity in the church is a beautiful thing. The psalmist says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. However, we do not achieve such unity by downplaying truth. Rather, notice what the church does here in our text for the sake of unity. In the face of this dissension and debate, verse 2 goes on to say, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. And in verse 3, it says they were sent on their way by the church. This was a collective act. This was not Paul and Barnabas just going off. This was uh, the church saying, for the sake of unity, for the sake of getting on the same page, we're hearing this teaching coming from the church in Jerusalem, and it seems to not jive with what we are seeing Uh, from the Lord, how do we get ourselves back on the same page? Um, And so Paul and Barnabas and the delegation are sent by the church to Jerusalem. And if you continue in verse 3, it says, despite the gravity of their mission, while they were on their way, they went through Phoenicia and Samaria. And notice how they can't help but share in detail with the brethren there about the conversion of the Gentiles from their missionary journey. And how it says, It brought great joy and encouragement to all the brothers there. This too is in service of unity. Here they are. They're on their way to what's going to be a council uh, in Jerusalem. But even as they're going, rather than just kind of go from straight, straight from point A to B, on the way, they make the point of sharing with believers in Phoenicia and in Samaria all that the Lord had been doing among the Gentiles. I was just thinking this morning, it's, you know, like going down from Oakland to San Jose uh, and taking the time on the way down the 880 to stop by in Hayward and Fremont and Milpitas um, and share with the brethren what God has been doing. And incidentally, our pastor is down in Milpitas right now sharing in detail uh, what the Lord is doing here at Realm and in Oakland uh, for the joy of those brothers and sisters. Upon arriving in Jerusalem, Verse 4 tells us they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. But at the same time, it says they encountered some members of the circumcision party who echo what the men who had come down uh, to Antioch were insisting on, namely that Gentile believers must be circumcised and ordered to keep the law of Moses. So if you're Paul and Barnabas, it's starting to make sense now. 
It says they were welcomed by the church. They were welcomed by the apostles and the elders, right? That's good. And then they were also criticized at the same time. So they arrive in Jerusalem and realize there's, there's some competing schools of thought here. Um, it's a mixed welcome. And so in verse 6, the council is convened, and we read that the apostles and the elders gathered together to consider this matter. Verse 7 tells us that much debate ensues. Now, the debate is not recorded for us. Um, and we, while we don't have the full record of everything that Paul and Barnabas might have said uh, in this debate, we do know what Paul's position on this subject is. And for that, we have Romans and Galatians. I'm going to read each of those texts so that we understand what Paul's position is, and we could infer that that is in line with what he would have shared um, at the debate here in this council. So Romans chapter 4, and this will tie together with the text we read in Genesis 17. So Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. It says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? This is Paul writing to the Romans. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and those whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Now listen to this. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised, okay? So Paul's argument here is that Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness in Genesis 15. That's where we see Abraham's faith counted to him as righteousness, which was before the text we read at the beginning in Genesis 17, right, when he was circumcised. And what does Paul say the point is? He says it here. The purpose was to make him, Abraham, the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. Okay? So that's argument one. Argument two comes from Galatians. So we've just said Galatians was most likely written in the period captured in Acts 14.28, that last verse of Acts 14, just before our text. So the ink is not yet dry on the letter to the Galatians. And Paul, in Galatians says, I'm going to read a few verses, Galatians 5, 2 to 6, says, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. Right? If, it's, if, you, if circumcision is required, you have to take the whole thing, the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Okay? And then if we do one page over, Galatians 6, 12 to 15, Galatians 6, 12 to 15, says, It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised, 
that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Okay, back to our text, Acts 15. We now, from reading Romans and Galatians, have a sense of what Paul would have said uh, here in verse 7. And next in verse 7 is Peter's, what I'm calling his mic drop argument. I'm going to read it from verses 7 to 12. Okay? After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore... Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. It says, and all the assembly fell silent. All right, hence the mic drop. Now, where have we heard this before? Remember back in Acts 11? Um, won't take the time to read through it. Uh, but this is when Peter is reporting after, after Cornelius comes to faith. It does say, uh, down in uh, verse 18, uh, after he has shared the account of Cornelius, that when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. So this is what Peter is referring to when he says, brothers, you know that in the early days, Remember, something happened not too long ago, right? And that's how me, Peter, a Jew, came to be convinced that the Gentiles were included, right? Um, and so we have the account of Cornelius as just an example of God's inclusion of the Gentiles. But really, if you think all the way back to the beginning, God has been reaching for the outsider since the Old Testament, Sometimes when we think of Abraham, right, he's the father of the Jewish nation, but has it occurred to you that he was first a pagan from Ur of the Chaldees, right? The first Jew was first a pagan before God called him, right? Jesus eats with tax collectors like Zacchaeus and even calls one of them, Matthew, to be one of his 12 disciples. Women who are often excluded are included, we see the story of Rahab at Jericho, the story of Ruth, the Moabites, the account of Jesus and the Samaritan woman. All throughout the biblical record, we see pictures of grace towards the outsider, pointing us ahead to this full inclusion of the Gentiles, and that includes you and me. Grace turns outsiders into insiders. Just as we saw from the sermon on Cornelius four weeks ago in Acts 11, we must strive by the power of the Holy Spirit to cultivate and to nurture a passion for outsiders. I praise the Lord for how he's making this already an evident distinctive of Realm Church in these early days. Okay, so this is Peter reminding. After the reminder comes a question in verse 10. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. Rabbis would often use the metaphor of a yoke. Um, so this is that bar of wood that's laid across the necks of uh, oxen to keep them together when plowing. He uses that to refer to the law, such that Peter is here referring not just to circumcision, but to the whole law of Moses. Peter is not denying the gift that the law is to Israel. Rather, his argument is that Israel has shown over and over and over and over again, that they were unable to fulfill it perfectly, and thus salvation could not be obtained through the works of the law. Time and time again in the four Gospels, Jesus pokes holes, gaping holes in the prideful law-keeping of the Pharisees to demonstrate that it is impossible to be right with God through the keeping of the law. Go this afternoon and read the seven woes that he pronounces on them in Matthew 23. Right? 
Jesus says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And then he lists off, right? You tithe of your mint and your, your cumin, and you've neglected the weightier, weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. In Matthew 5, Jesus says in verse 17, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And in Galatians 3, verse 24, the apostle Paul tells the Galatians, and he tells us this morning, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. The authorized version, the King James Version, says the law was our schoolmaster in place of guardian. Are guardians useful to a child? Absolutely. Are schoolmasters useful to a child? Yes. But parents are ideal, right? And so this is a picture of the law had its place. It was a placeholder, if you will, a guardian, if you will, um, until Christ came. Christ comes and fulfills the law. The law shows us our sin, and it shows us our sin against the backdrop of God's holiness. And that's bad news. It crushes us as long as we think we can earn our way out of it. But thankfully, it doesn't end there. Look at how Peter concludes his argument. His conclusion is good news. He lays out the bad news in the form of the question in verse 10, but in 11, he says, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. So it's not works of the law, but grace. Notice how this is a direct refutation of the teaching that these men brought in verse 1. What was the teaching in verse 1? Unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, what? You cannot be saved, right? That was the teaching. And verses, verse 11 says, we believe that what? We will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Hallelujah. Not by the yoke of the law, verse 10, but by the grace of the Lord Jesus, verse 11. What is grace? Undeserved, unmerited favor from God, given, not earned. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Some of you know this by memory. For by grace are you saved through faith. It is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It is not the result of works that no man may boast. Right? Verse 10 tells us the place of works. It says, for we are his workmanship. We are created unto good works, which God hath ordained for us to walk in. Verse 10 but that comes after 8 and 9. 8 and 9, salvation by grace through faith, not of works. And just as the Jewish audience that heard Peter in chapter 11 fell silent, here too we read that the assembly fell silent. Peter's argument then gives way to the testimony of Barnabas and Paul as they proceed to tell once again of God's wondrous work uh, among the Gentiles. And then we hear from James. Now, this is a different James than the brother of John. We know from a few Sundays ago, James, the brother of John, has been beheaded. So this would be James, um, the brother of Jesus. Uh, and so he is speaking here in verse 13. And even though Peter's argument has been watertight and sufficiently compelling, the words of James are important because he is speaking before the council to show that the words of the prophets agree with the words that Peter has just said. Okay? So today we have the canon of Scripture, so if somebody comes to us teaching something, we can compare it with this. But back then, when they did not have the full canon of Scripture, what were they to evaluate teaching against? They had the Old Testament Scriptures, the, word, the prophets, and so that's what's happening here. This is James um, quoting from the Old Testament to show that what Peter has just said agrees with what the prophets said. So verses 13 to 18, as we conclude, it says, After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, this is Simon Peter, has related how God has visited, first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, 
who makes these things known from of old. James is quoting from another book of the Bible that has four letters and starts with A and ends with S, and it's not Acts. Amos, uh, Amos uh, chapter 9, verse 11 to 12. Sounds almost like what we just read. Amos 9, 11 to 12. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Amos says all the nations. Uh, here in Acts, it says all the Gentiles. Same thing. James is appealing to this Old Testament text to defend the inclusion of Gentiles by faith. Amos was prophesying back then about the restoration of Israel. And he looks ahead to a time when God would claim for himself a people from among Gentile nations. And in speaking this way, James is giving more weight uh, to Peter's argument uh, for Gentile inclusion. And thus, the case at the Jerusalem Council can now be closed and the council can be adjourned. You can take time this afternoon to read the rest of chapter 15 and see the letter that the council then wrote to the Gentile believers in Antioch, where Paul and Barnabas had come from. And if you do take the time to read that, look out for the joy and the encouragement that it brought to them when they gathered together and received the letter. I won't read the letter, but verses 30 and 31 it says there, Acts 15, 30, 31, So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. <clears throat> Friends, do you know this joy? Do you know this encouragement? Do you know this grace of the Lord Jesus? That though he was rich, yet for your sakes became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich, do you know that salvation belongs to the Lord, that it is holy of grace through faith apart from works of the law? Are you still carrying with you on your neck the, the yoke that neither your forefathers nor you have been able to bear? Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, he says, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. He says this to you and me because he has fulfilled the law by keeping it perfectly and then going to the cross and laying down his life willingly for lawbreakers like you and me. He was raised again on the third day so that if by grace through faith we are in him, we too can be raised in newness of life. I'm going to end by reading one more time from Galatians 3. And then we'll transition here to the Lord's Supper. Galatians 3 verses 10 to 14. It says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And so it is that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, we're told that he took bread and he broke it and gave thanks, and said, take this, eat, in remembrance of me. Likewise, he took the cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. 
As, do this as often as you meet, take this, drink, and remember in remembrance of me. And so now we're going to, as is our custom here at Realm Church, take this time to remember. As Peter reminded the Jerusalem Council, we too seek to be reminded. If we've been in Christ for a while, we have embraced this gospel of grace apart from the works of the law. And yet, no matter how long you and I have been walking with the Lord, we are prone to fall back on our works as a way of earning favor with God, as a way of pleasing Him, right? And forgetting that we come to Him as children who have already been accepted because of the work of Christ. If you know Christ, this meal is for you. If you do not know Christ, we ask that you would abstain from this meal. Observe it, right? Watch as we partake of it, as we are reminded of the gospel of grace through Jesus Christ. Let's pray, and then after I thank, give thanks, come when you're ready. Lord, we thank you for grace. We thank you for your mercy upon lawbreakers like us who have failed utterly to keep your holy standard. We are thankful for your son, Jesus Christ, who came to this world, who walked on this earth, kept the law perfectly, and then went to the cross on behalf of lawbreakers like us, shedding his blood that we, lawbreakers, might become children adopted into your family by grace. And we worship you for this. We ask that the partaking of this bread and this cup would remind us of who we are in Christ before you. Bless our time together, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Come when you're ready.